I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Tales from Early Medieval Britain, with Amy Jeffs, and her new book, Wild. Amy Jeffs is an artist and art historian, specialising in the Middle Ages. In 2019, she gained a PhD in art history from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, having studied for earlier degrees at the Courtauld Institute of Art and the University of Cambridge. During her PhD, Amy co-convened a project researching medieval badges and pilgrim souvenirs at the British Museum and worked in the British Library's Department of Ancient, Medieval and Early Modern Manuscripts. Her first book, Storyland, was a Sunday Times bestseller and a Wardstone's non-fiction paperback book of the month. It was also shortlisted for the Wardstone Book of the Year in 2021. And we will be talking about Storyland a little bit later on because both that and Amy's new book are sort of intertwined. So Amy's new book is Wild, Tales from Early Medieval Britain. Amy, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So yeah, so Storyland is a collection of British myths that you've rewritten and provided a little commentary on each story. Wild does something similar but with a more, I guess, a more specific theme. So tell us what the idea is behind Wild. So Wild explores an old idea of the wilderness through the lens of surviving artefacts and texts from early medieval Britain. And unlike later medieval Britain, from which many of the sources are drawn for Storyland, this is a period with it's much more fragmentary period in terms of the of the evidence that we have in terms of our knowledge of the culture. And so it uses its pole star, a selection of elegies from a manuscript called the Exeter Book that paint these very, very intriguing pictures, these kind of incomplete stories that I wanted to expand on and explore. And I bring in some related poetry and artifacts from the Celtic world as well in doing that. Each chapter begins with a short story inspired by these artifacts or texts and closes, as in Storyland, with a commentary, a non-fiction commentary that aims to kind of bring the reader into this historical period, but also the imaginative world and its connection to the landscape. So tell us about why the wilderness then. So I know you just said that these stories are set 
in a time that's an early medieval period where we, we know relatively little about, there's not a lot of surviving artifacts mm-hmm. and written records from the time. So how does that connect to the theme then? of these are all being about the wild. Well, I feel, I mean, I came across this poetry as an 18-year-old reading a course where we did Old English as a paper, Old English Language and Literature. And I had always had a, quite a fondness for the wilderness and for wildlife and trees and things like that. Uh, and I think that I was, I fell in love with these poems because of that existing predilection on my part. They evoke I mean, they, one of the things that they do very distinctively is juxtapose strong expressions of emotion with descriptions of wild places. So, for instance, in this manuscript, the Exeter book, which has been at Exeter Cathedral since 1072 and contains a whole host of poems and texts in Old English that may well considerably predate the manuscript in terms of the, the date of their composition. It has all these scurrilous, quite funny riddles, but in and among the riddles it has these elegies as they're known. And one of them is called Wolf and Airdwatcher. And this was one that particularly captured my imagination as an 18 year old. It says, you know, Wolf is on a year, it's on Othra, fastest that Eiland Fenner be warpen. Wolf is on an island, I am on another, safe is that island surrounded by fens. And then the narrator, who is um, definitively a woman, goes on to describe this kind of strange love triangle she's involved in with one she calls Wolf and one she calls Erdwatcher. And in that, she describes the rain falling when it was rainy weather and I sat weeping. The warrior embraced me with his limbs. And the word she uses for limbs is a kind of um, a word that's applied to animal legs. So you've got this kind of wolf, dog, limbs. She says her hopes of wolf dogged her. And when the warrior embraces her, she says, was me wintuthon, was me huathraech, love. It was joyful to me, as in winsome, was me wintuthon. Uh, was Mihuatra Ejlath was, however, hateful, loathsome love. And so there's this sort of climax is this poem with her crying out, Can you hear me, Eadwatcher? Wolf is carrying our wretched whelp to the woods. Um, and it's incredibly urgent and mysterious because initially you think she's in love with this figure called Wolf, but then suddenly he seems to be kidnapping a child that she has for somebody else. And so it's really intriguing. And, and it's, there's the woods, there's the fens, there's the rain. And there's this bleak sense of longing and, and love. And so really, there's something about, I mean, I came back to these sources at the start of lockdown, the old English elegies, when you're taught them as an undergraduate, you hear all about the themes of exile and earthly transience, so the transience of earthly glory, themes of isolation and love. And it was at the start of lockdown that these themes started being in the mainstream media. And I, I found that my imagination kept returning to the elegies and I ended up carving the wood engraving that forms the front cover of Wild. It was at the start of lockdown that I, um, which shows a scene from another very quite similar poem to Wolf and Edwatcher called The Wife's Lament, where a woman has been consigned to an earthen dugout under an oak tree by her lord, and we're not really sure why. But anyway, that's, I suppose, there was this sense of emotion and the wilderness. I returned to them through lockdown. I returned to them again after having a baby about a year and a half ago. And in the light of being very, very anxious about climate change, and so it just seemed that the only way to explore, for me at that point, to explore these elegies and then from there to use them as a springboard to explore a much wider corpus of um, poems and artefacts was through the lens of the wilderness and an old idea of the wilderness. We're going to come back to the, um, the Lament of Hoss, which is the first story mm. in the book, but let's just stick with the, um, the Fen story at the moment. Mm. This, this story also sort of encompasses 
and you talk about an artifact in the book. Um, this story encompasses the idea of Fenland living and, and how difficult that would have mm-hmm. been. And um, there's a an artifact you mentioned in the book um, from the um, Avalon Marshes near Glastonbury of like a path. Now, I think, I'm not sure if it's the exact same one, but I saw something very similar to this at the um, the amazing Stonehenge exhibition that was at, mm-hmm. at the British Museum a couple of years back of like a bridge through the fens that, that was yes. built. So tell us something about what life would have been like for these people that were living in the world of Wolf and Edwacker living in the fens in the you know East Anglia. Well, I feel as though I can. I have this strong imaginative version of it, but I need to root it in, in what we actually know. But the the fens proper are obviously these are the fenland that goes across Norfolk and through Cambridgeshire up into I think into Lincolnshire. Um, they were drained in the 18th century to make way for agriculture, and with that, an absolutely unique ecosystem was almost completely destroyed. And there are very precious pockets of this kind of wetland still surviving there. And they're an amazing habitat for all kinds of birds and creatures. But it was this wilderness, the Fenland wilderness, that monks would go to at a time when Irish monasticism had a very strong cultural influence on the monasticism in in Britain. And these monks would go to the Fens trying to emulate. So Irish monasticism really held up the example of the Desert Fathers, these founders of monasticism who went out into the desert in the Middle East and dwelled there to show their asceticism or their, their ability to kind of exert themselves in, in the wilderness in, on the path of salvation. And so, um, of course, Britain and Ireland didn't have any arid deserts, but it had very damp deserts. And it was, it was to the fens that monks would go to live this desert aromatic lifestyle. And so that, I think, gives one a sense of what these places were like. These, I mean, there was enough wild spaces in Britain at that point. You know, the Fens must have been really something to inspire that kind of effort and that sort of attract these sorts of um, devotees um, or pious, you know, pious monks. They were riddling spaces. I think one of the reasons that the Fen works so well as a setting for Wolf and Airdwatcher is the link this poem has with riddles. I mean, it's found in a collection of riddles. And it is uh, very mysterious and it's uh, an enigmatic in its telling of a story. We really don't know who's sleeping with who and who loves whom and who's hated and what's happening to the child. But it also closes with the line, it just goes to show you can easily tear apart that which was never sewn up, our song together. And that word song is, in Old English, is yeed, which can be translated as either song or riddle. And so you've got this riddling landscape and this riddle of a poem, really. You've also got then the kind of the treasures that come out of it, like the Sutton Hoo ship burial treasures, which are themselves covered in interlacing animals and writhing snakes. And I think it's it's part of a whole like riddling culture that really chimes with this landscape. Um, and actually, if I talk to you about, sorry, you asked about the paths. <laughs> the paths are um, Neolithic. So the one that I refer to in the book is called the so-called Sweet Track after its discoverer. Um, 19th century discoverer purportedly and it was these uh, x-shaped planks driven into the marsh and then uh, in the sort of v-shaped upper section they would put planks so it would enable people to navigate through the marsh and that made me very interested in the idea of path building one of the words for a uh, wilderness in old english is wayless you know a place without paths and so that's that navigating the wilderness through words or through journeys is one of the themes i'm exploring in the book so I said I wanted to talk about the first story in the book, Amy, which is the um, the lament of Hoss for the, um, mm-hmm. the 
the wilderness element Earth. So you gave a brief description of it, but tell us a bit more about that story. The book is structured with seven chapters. They are entitled Earth, Ocean, Forest, Beast, Fen, Catastrophe, Paradise. Um, And so we begin in the earth and we end in the sky. So the first chapter is very dark to the point that actually the audio book is illustrated with songs, um, which was a really exciting sideline project for this. And the first song has ended up being a kind of Scandi metal (laughs) kind of track. So I think that it's got this really sort of seething, unchecked rage (laughs) to it. And the earth really was considering that theme. I wanted to talk about the idea that early medieval idea that we we have this inevitable relationship with the earth. We come from it. We will return to it. And there's a wonderful poem called Soul and Body 2. That's a modern title um, in the Exeter book that describes that it has the soul talking to the body, which is a great idea. And it says that the body is worms meat. And it's kind of ridiculing the body and chastising it for its, its disgusting, earthy, soily qualities. And so one of the important, well, I, actually, and I went down into a cave to, to kind of talk about this and the idea that not only do we kind of come from the earth, but actually everything that we are physically is reflected by the earth and the, the world at large. So this kind of idea of man as microcosm and the idea that caves are a little bit like a they are like the body's own paths, the kind of veins and sinuses of the body. And so the, the sources that I chose to, to focus on were the Frank's casket, which is a whale's bone, an incredible, very, very intriguing object in the British Museum. And it's, it's called the Frank's casket after its first collector, but it's made of whale's bone and it's got narrative scenes carved. And they're, they're sort of like early days Wallace and Gromit in style, but much less comical. And these scenes are derived from. Germanic, biblical, and um, classical legend. They are paired in in such a way or sort of um, configured in such a way as really inspires the viewer to uh, come up with interpretations and and think on different themes. And one of the panels, so so we've got, as an example, we've on the front panel, we've got the story of Wayland the Smith. He's a Germanic or demigod Smith figure who um, is hamstrung by an evil king, forced to work for free, gets his revenge by killing the king's sons and turning their teeth into a brooch and their eyeballs into earrings and their skulls into a goblet, um, which he then sends back to the king who doesn't realise what's happened and thinks these are just beautiful treasures. And he also manages to lure the uh, king's daughter to the island on which he's imprisoned and he drugs her and rapes her and he gives her a sort of drugged drink. So this is depicted on the front of the Frank's casket. It's Beada Hill, the woman arriving at the island. She's looking out at the viewer. She's the only figure on the on that part of the panel to be looking out at the viewer as she takes this drug to drink. And Wayland is standing there holding a pair of tongs with the head of one of her brothers clamped in the tongs and the headless body under the floor of his forge. That is put next to, so this is a Germanic legend, this is put right beside the three kings visiting the virgin and child in Bethlehem. And, and the foremost of the kings, the one that brings her gold or brings the Christ child gold, that gold object is a cup. And so we have this amazing sort of paralleling of the stories and you'll ask about different kinds of, um, of impregnation. You know, there's this sort of consensual impregnation that leads to the incarnation of Christ versus the rape of Beardahild, which leads to the birth of a, of a character called Widia, who becomes a, a hero. Um, on another panel, you've got, the, uh, got Romulus and Remus suckling the she-wolf. On another, you've got the sacking of the temple in Jerusalem, another sort of violation theme. 
the whole object is made of whale's bone and there's a really wonderful runic inscription saying the king of terror was sad when he swam up on the shingle whale's bone so you've got this kind of a self-referential inscription describing the material and then on one of the panels you have this scene that hasn't yet been identified and it shows a figure dressed in a kind of animal mask or maybe it is a kind of animal there's a snake wound around its muzzle it seems to have cloven hooves it's talking to a kind of warrior figure and then a bit later on you have further along the panel you have a what looks like a female figure she's kind of hooded or veiled she's standing over a something that could either be a, a funeral pyre or perhaps a burial mound there's a little figure lying within or on it and there are a few little runic inscriptions as a horse and it seems to be labeled biter uh, there are some rushes and that appears in runes as well an inscription around the outside says something along the lines of and I'm paraphrasing Hoss was sad upon the sorrow mound as she dwelled on the on the injuries that Ertai had caused for her. And we don't know who Hoss and Ertai are. There's no other record of them. And a scholar called Sarah Semple suggested a connection between this enigmatic scene and one of the old English elegies known as the wife's lament, in which a woman is consigned to an earthen dugout under an oak tree, as I briefly mentioned already. But um, she kind of proposes that there was perhaps some kind of narrative link to this extremely enigmatic poem and this extremely enigmatic illustration. It doesn't really necessarily get us that much closer to what, if there was some kind of background story, what that was, some fuller narrative. But it does flesh out the kind of imaginative world of that vignette that we have. And that's really then what, um, along with Sarah Semple's wider theories about the meaning of this poem, what uh, inspired the short story that opens the book. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Amy Jeffs, and we're talking about her book, Wild Tales from Early Medieval Britain. We were talking about the story, The Lament of Hoss and the Franks casket. And this casket features in a later story mm-hmm. in the chapter Beast, which is about whales. And we've talked about the casket. So let's talk about the place that whales held in the medieval imagination. Yes. And this is Wales with an H. <laughs> as opposed to Wales, the country. But um, yeah, so basically there's this, there's a poem called The Whale in the Exeter book, which explains how the whale will pose as, a, as an island by pushing its back above the waves so that unsuspecting sailors passing by will moor their boats and make camp and light fires. And as soon as it feels the sensation of the fire on its skin, it knows it's got its prey and it dives and it drags the sailors down to the abyss. And the abyss is this deep, deep place in the ocean, and it's a kind of hellish place. I think the earthly version, the sort of rock version, is Tartarus and Erebus, um, these, these realms of utter blackness and numbness and silence. And so that's where the whale drags the sailors. It says, I'm also known as Fastito Kalon. This is a translation, or it's not a translation, it's a, it's a sort of old English spin-off of a... Um, a text called the Physiologus, which has its origins in second century Greece, which takes uh, is a kind of um, encyclopedia of the animal world that allegorizes the animals. And so it, sa- it goes on to say this poem, the whale, just as the whale poses as an island to lure sailors to their death. So too, the devil will pose as a safe reef. He'll pose as, some- as something comforting and beneficent that we in life will be drawn to thinking it a safe place to make camp. And in fact, it will lead us to hell. And so there was this allegorization in the old English poem inspired by the physiologus. And I felt as though that was a really interesting jumping off point. And actually, and I'll say in the old physiologus, it's not called a whale. It's called aspidocoloni or asp turtle. And it's, it kind of helps us understand that this, they're not visualizing. Of course, people would have seen whales in Britain in this period. They're not thinking, I don't think, of these um, something we might have seen off the coast of Britain, a big fish. They're thinking of something which really does have mountains on its back. Uh, this, this asp turtle was this kind of this mythical creature that had valleys and ravines and rivers on its back so that it could be a very convincing island. I became drawn to this idea just because I, mean, I thought it was very beautiful and interesting. I thought it sort of opened up the ideas around the Frank's casket, which is kind of object from the same period that we've already discussed. You know, it's, it's made of whale's bone. It refers to itself as being made of whale's bone and it empathizes with the whale. And I kind of riff on that a bit in the story. But this is an allegory for hell. I mean, there are other ways of interpreting the whale. There's the Old Testament story of Jonah and his three days sojourn in the whale's belly. And this was used in Christian thought as a type, so a kind of reflection, an Old Testament reflection of a New Testament event for um, Christ's three days in hell prior to the resurrection, the harrowing of hell. And so the whale's belly is also a kind of hell. And so that's kind of where I was working from. Oh, yes. With the Frank's casket, of course, you then got these other layers of meaning that it's been turned into a vessel itself, this kind of subjugation of the material for human ends. You know, all of these things are very interesting. They're quite detached from our everyday life. But I did feel as though the allegory of the whale, although you know, whether or not you believe in the devil, actually, we can all identify with that feeling of the ground slipping from underneath your feet. 
that we you thought something was safe and you suddenly realize you're not uh, whether it's in a relationship or in in a real physical situation or in that kind of psychological situation where you followed a train of thought over and over again because you think you'll find an answer but actually now it's becoming a dangerous obsession you know that kind of thing and so I felt as though there were still very human stories to be told out of this perhaps you know on the face of it archaic allegory one of the um as you mentioned one of the stories on the um on the frank's casket is the story of well and the smith and and that happens to be one of the stories that you tell in storyland mm-hmm. their previous book so um i just wanted to talk about one other story in storyland and mm-hmm. with recording this literally an hour after another home secretary has resigned mm-hmm. you don't have to name the one because by the time this broadcasts, probably another one might have gone. Um, but one of the stories that I want to talk about is called The Naming of Albion, which is fundamentally a story of a bunch of Syrian asylum seekers crossing the English Channel in an open boat to get yes. to Britain. So tell us something yeah. about this story. Well, this, is, it's, um, this story was written as a kind of prequel to a text called The History of the Kings of Britain mid-12th century text that sought to tell an overarching history of Britain from its first foundation up to the arrival of the Saxons. And one of the things that when the founder of Britain, Brutus, arrives on Britain's shores, he has to contend with some indigenous giants. And I won't go into how that ends, but um, this was a very, became a very established story. It was the dominant history of Britain from its, uh, its composition in the second quarter of the 12th century up to well into the 16th century and but after a while people did begin to wonder how the giants got there and so there was a prequel written um it's sort of 13th century and there's a latin version a virgin <laughs> there's a latin version and there's a french version which is called des grands géants of the great giants and it explains how there were 30 Syrian sisters who are princesses, uh, the daughters of a very, very great king in Syria, and how they are married to his 30 barons. And they are you know, they're very tall, they're very mighty, but they have no real power for themselves. And they want that power. They have that kind of potential for power, if that's not a tautology. And um, they plot to kill their husbands and overthrow their father and seize the throne. But unfortunately, one of the youngest of their number is actually quite likes her husband and tells him what they're planning. And they are hauled before the king and punished by being put into a rudderless boat and cast adrift. And there's a there's a storm at sea. And by some very circuitous geography, they end up in the Atlantic and washing up on the shores of this completely empty island. Now, the eldest of the sisters is called Albina. And she, as soon as she sets foot on the beach and they discover that this place has no inhabitants, she says, this is going to be our kingdom. And she calls it Albion uh, after herself. And I won't go all the way to the end of the story, but uh, the birth of the race of giants has to do with once the sisters have learned to live off the land and forage and kill deer and fish and all of that stuff. And they've grown, not only are they now successfully living off the land, but they've actually grown quite fat. Do they start, do their minds turn to sex? And the, it's being an uninhabited island and they all being sisters means that the, um, the only one that hears the call of their lust is the devil. And I'll, I'll leave it there. I think one of the challenges I faced when I was writing this story is that in the uh, medieval version, Albina and her sisters fall under the category, and I'm going to do air quotes here, of the female Saracen. This kind of hot-headed, 
very determined, very active figure, but one that is also perhaps not to be trusted. And the the race of giants that they engender is is likewise, you know, is malevolent. And um, and I did not want to operate within that tradition in my retelling. And you know, that was very much informed by by the kind of application you you gave it to contemporary modern situations. I did want to to kind of develop the story a bit further. You know, Albina and her sisters encounter. Um, the devil and his legion and it was how to write that scene when they and this is very much sexual um, how to write that in a way that wasn't gratuitous and in the end I just I chose and this is where I work kind of in retellings you can you can enter the minds of the characters and I felt I had license to do that and kind of consider their motivations in ways that the medieval text doesn't Um, and so although the plot remains the same the kind of justification for the character's actions can shift and I had this idea that perhaps when Albina meets the devil, she realizes that the longing that she was feeling for human tenderness and touches was as nothing to this being that had known no love for 6,000 years. And so she sleeps with him out of pity is maybe too, um, too unkind a term, but out of kindness. And so that I did, and then I did try and by doing that sort of put more agency into the sisters' hands and make them more interesting and, uh, and less less suspicious characters than they have been portrayed in the uh, in the medieval version just one more question from me and then i will i will ask you to to read us a little bit if you would Mm -hmm. and and actually this last question we could probably talk for the whole show about but um, (laughs) just very briefly tell us something about your printmaking process which we can see throughout these two books yes so i began storyland with images i was finishing my phd writing it up in Somerset. And uh, I was living in, I'm living in a town where there's a really vibrant artistic community uh, in the town of Froome near Bath. And I started doing printmaking from home just to entertain myself while I was working on the thesis. And for some reason, I had the idea that I could illustrate the origin myth of Britain that was in one of the manuscripts I was, I was studying. And I was studying the illustra- medieval illustrations of this text. And so I thought, okay, I might have a go doing my own series. And so I started with the picture that became the cover of Storyland. And um, and then I did Merlin, the child Merlin guiding the building of Stonehenge. Uh, And I actually found was doing a terrible job on my own. And uh, and so had to contact a printmaker in Froome who turned out to be one of the best humans I'd ever meet called um, Chris Pig. And um, I emailed him at five in the morning in 2018, November 2018. And he emailed back 10 minutes later saying you found the right place. And so he then introduced me to really good quality lino carving tools. He had a press, he had the right inks, he had a wealth of knowledge and experience about the tradition of printmaking, and I was completely hooked. And so then the series grew, and I then sort of started pursuing the idea of turning it into a book. But the uh, process of lino cuts are very, I think it has a potential for for certain playfulness, which worked for me very well with Storyland. There's a kind of, the stories in Storyland are often written with a, a clear political agenda at the time, or they they have a kind of uh, utility for maybe an abbey. Maybe it's to do with their one of their saints who they've got relics for. So there was this kind of they're entertaining. They are used for very serious purposes and to justify real wars and real the spilling of of real blood. But there's something kind of entertaining about them too, and something kind of rhetorical. Whereas the stories that I was trying to, that I was exploring and the, the sources that I was exploring for Wild are a bit more serious and kind of earnest. And, and although the, 
I wanted to go somewhere very hopeful with the book. I felt as though my style of lino cut, I mean, because obviously some people can do lino cut and it's, it's very serious, but mine felt more playful. And so I thought I want to do wood engraving this time, which is where you incise tiny lines into little blocks of wood. And they're, they're the types of timber that grow very, very slowly, things like boxwood. And you, you carve into the end grain. So it's cut like a, like a little round, like a slice of the tree. And it was invented in the 19th century for kind of illustrating newspapers and things and is capable of taking great pressure. But you get this, this you know, miniature artwork and, it's, and the lines are very, can be very delicate. And I felt as though the fact of using wood chimed with the, the ethos of the book and the aesthetic was suitably reserved and precise. And so the thing that's actually very satisfying about Wild is that the, uh, the wood engravings are printed to scale. In Storyland, I did larger lino cuts, which were then shrunk down. And that's fine. With the wood engravings, they were all red. The blocks themselves were 7.5 by 10 centimetres. And I, I asked them to be printed at that scale in the book as well. So it would have the feeling of a book that had been printed on a traditional press, where the illustrations had been dropped into the text block as they were on the wooden block and then inked and passed through the press as one. And so that that kind of feeling of a book as artifact and as a handmade object would be present in Wild. That's my, my reflections on the medium. The Lament of Hoss. Cold it is. Cold and so close that I can feel my neighbours against me, their beards and bones rotting like stacks of winter branches. I hear the voices of elves, goblins and old gods that haunt these unhallowed halls. They whisper that I am friendless, that my old companions are dead, that my love has left me forever, that I must hope without hope until I am no more than an ache in the air. And always it is dark, but for that one ray of light, now bright, now dim, which spears through the gloom. I have pressed my eye to the hole through which it passes and seen behind the boughs of an oak tree, the sun drag. So slowly it must be yearning to die from dark to dark until all at once it is done and another day has passed. And another day has passed in which my beloved has not come for me. But he will. He must. He told me to wait. Why would he leave me here among the corpses with no news? In this ancient earth hall I am all longing. The sunlight is gone. The hood of the night promises me protection. If only I could escape and find him for myself. If only I could. I work at the hole with my nails and teeth, with the iron file of my will, despite the words of the demons that throng behind me. I do not know if I have grown thin or if my work has wrought some change on the stone, but finger by finger, by elbow, shoulder and spine, I work my way to the air, lying on the leaf mould, feeling the dark wind on my head after the long, damp stillness makes me weep for pleasure. Lifting myself, I scoop up the leaves young in their decay and press them to my face. They smell of life, of change, of the joyful arc of birth to death to which I no longer belong. Out here there are no voices but those of birds, and there are no shadows but those cast by the moonlight through the branches of the tree. I raise my head and look into the canopy. The thought passes through my mind like the shadow of a crow. There were no trees here then. So I've been talking to Amy Jeffs. We've been talking about her books, Wild, Tales from Early Medieval Britain, and Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain. Both are out from River Run in the UK. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to share them with me. Thank you for having me, Neil. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.